0: Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hi, this is Carla Unseth, and welcome to Building a Bridge to God's Word, and thanks so much for joining me today. If you have been with us over the past several podcasts, we've been talking about the history of the English Bible, and we started at the very beginning with inspiration, talking about how God inspired the original writing of the text, and we've gone all the way up to the King James Version, which was translated in 1611. So today I want to start there at the King James Version and talk all the way up into modern translation. And I don't wanna just talk about the different translations that have been done, there, there's there been a lot of them, but I wanna answer some of the questions that come up when people talk about modern translation. Things like, can we trust modern translations because they are different from each other? So what makes them different and how can they still be trustworthy? And then also, why are there so many? How come we have so many translations? So I want to answer some of those questions, and that means this will be a little bit longer of a podcast than usual, but all this information kind of is interrelated, so I wanted to put it all together as one. So, let's go ahead and get started. And we ended last time by talking about the King James Version, which was called the Translation to End All Translations. And it did essentially end all translation of the Bible into English for the next 300 years. So that was done in 1611. And so 300 years later is 1911. So we had in the 1700s, Two major revisions, and one was the 1752 revision of the Douay Reims Bible. So, if you remember, we talked about that, and that was the Bible that was commissioned by the Catholic Church, the Douay Reims. And then in 1769, there was a revision of the King James Bible. We talked a little bit about that last time. So that brings us through the 1700s, essentially. So then in the 1800s, the next hundred years, there were eight translations or revisions that were done. And the most famous of that is the revised version, and that's a revision of the King James. So then when we get to the 1900s, 300 years after the King James Version, suddenly we have a huge explosion of translation. So from 1900 until today, the next 118 years, there have been 89 translations and revisions. So in that 118 years, we've essentially octupled the number of Bible translations that are available. So some of these are revisions and some are actual versions, uh, new versions of the Bible. So I haven't done a lot of research on why so many more have been done, but I suspect that it has to do with a few different things. And one, of course, is increased religious freedom as persecution went down and as people had the ability to worship in different ways people had the ability to translate the bible and to to try different things to look at it in different ways and along with that came increased scholarship people studied the bible more and and in different ways and we found new evidence new manuscripts so all of that increased the people's desire to translate and then of course there's increased technology and having technology that is better has made it more possible to translate and to publish, of course. So it's great that we have all this access to God's Word, but of course the question that naturally arises is, why so many? Why do we need all these translations and why are they different from each other? So there are several different reasons that are given for different translations and revisions. First, I want to talk about why translations are revised and updated. There are two main reasons for revising a translation, and they are because of changes in the English language and because of advances in biblical research. So, as we all know, English has changed a lot in the past several hundred years. So, if you read Shakespeare in school or even took a stab at Chaucer, that's way back from the 1300s, in the original way it was written... You'll know that English, as it was spoken then, is hardly even intelligible to English as we speak it today. And this is perfectly natural for languages. But it does mean that books, which are meant to last for multiple generations, will have to be revised in order to remain understandable. So the second thing that's changed and actually improved over the past several hundred years is biblical research of course, people might say that since the Bible never changes, how can research really improve things? Well, there are scholars who devote their lives to studying the ancient biblical texts, and as they study, they look at the Bible and they look at other texts that were written in the same time, and their understanding of the words and and the way to translate it does improve. And this doesn't necessarily mean that We shouldn't trust what we have now, but it means that as new things are discovered and we gain new understanding, um, we we might gain new insight into biblical texts. And an example of this, something you might have heard, is the verse, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And for a long time, that was put out there as a promise for Christian parents that if they teach their children Christian principles and train them correctly, they will become Christians and they will live Christian lifestyles. But this wasn't always reflected in the way that kids actually grow up. So now, as scholars go back and look at that verse again, they're realizing that it would be better to translate it something like, train up a child according to his way, and he will not depart from it. So in other words, if you train up a child the way that they want, like if you just give in to all your child's demands, then when they, as they grow up, they're not going to turn away from that. They're not going to suddenly become a unselfish, loving and caring person if all of their life they've, you've given in to their selfish demands. So that's really more what that verse is. It's, it's not a promise, but more of a warning for parents. So that's an example of where our understanding of the text has improved. And that's good. That's so good for us. So on top of that, there's discovery of new manuscripts, and there's a whole field of study called textual criticism, where they study these new manuscripts, and they can determine where there's differences between manuscripts, which is more likely to be closer to the original. And so, for example, of course, the discovery we all know about is the Dead Sea Scrolls, and those were much earlier than any manuscripts that we'd ever had before. And so when they compared those manuscripts, they saw two things. First of all, they saw that they were surprisingly accurate for how um, how far apart they were in time. Um, they were very accurate, which definitely increases our trust in the Bible. But they also could see where, their, where the errors were. And then these people who do textual criticism, they could say, you know, which one is closer to the original? Where is it more likely that a scribe put in a change or somebody made a spelling mistake or something like that? So, and just a note, if you are um, curious about these differences that I'm talking about, we talked about those in the Inspiration podcast. So you can go back and listen to learn a little bit more about that. So all of this research, all of this biblical research, helps to improve our understanding of the Bible and to be able to translate it more accurately. Those are two reasons that people make revisions to translations they've already done, but there are also new translations that have been made during this time, and there's two main reasons also for those new translations. The first reason is because of audience. So sometimes there's an audience that's not being reached by a translation, and it might be age or education related. So, for example, some translations are aimed at scholars or people with a higher reading level, a higher education level. And some translations are aimed at children or people with a low reading level. There's even some translations that are aimed at second language learners of English. It could also be related to, say, religious background. So, for example, there are translations aimed at Jewish audiences, and there's translations that are made for Catholic audiences. So this doesn't mean that the meaning is changed, but it means that the translators will use wording that's more familiar to these audiences. So the second reason for a new translation is because of something called translation theory. And translation theory is basically how a translator is deciding to translate the text. So there's two main translation theories. It's kind of on a spectrum, actually. And so on one end of the spectrum, you have a word-for-word or a literal translation. And on the other end of the spectrum is a more thought-based translation. So a word-for-word translation tries to stick as closely as possible to the original words in the original language. So these kinds of translations are great for study because you can really delve into the original meanings and the translators are not doing any interpretation. But the drawback, of course, is that sometimes it's hard to understand, sometimes the way that they communicate things in another language just doesn't make sense in our language. So the more literal you try to be, the harder it is to understand. So on the other side of the spectrum, the thought-based translations focus on meaning. So rather than translating the exact words, they take a phrase, they say, what does this phrase mean? And they write it in the most natural way possible in the new language. So these translations are great for devotional reading through the Bible. They're natural. They're easy to understand. But, of course, the drawback is that there are times when the translation team has to make an interpretation decision, a decision on what something means that's not clear in the original text. So as you're reading, you're not getting all the potential options for meaning. You're getting one option. So there are also some translations that tried to hit a middle ground, kind of in the middle of that spectrum, and they they try to be thought-based and easy to read as often as possible, but wherever the meaning is ambiguous, they switch back to that word-for-word word so that they're not making an interpretation decision. So I should also note that on the very far end of the spectrum, there's also what's called a paraphrase, and it's technically not on the translation spectrum because it's actually not a translation. It's really one person's interpretation of the text. So usually they're very idiomatic and very easy to read, but they make a lot of interpretation decisions and it's not usually considered a translation. So let me give you some examples of these different kinds of translations. On the word-for-word side of the spectrum, A translation that you're probably familiar with is the English Standard Version. So let me tell you a little bit about the English Standard Version. The ESV was published in 2001. It was done by a team of over 100 international scholars. It used the revised Standard Version as a starting point. And the reason for this translation, so every team, when they translate, especially when they're doing a new translation, they have a reason for it. What what is the purpose behind this translation? And for the ESV, the reason was to create a mainstream classic translation. So they wanted to keep some of that classic thought and feeling of the King James, but they wanted to update the language, make it more mainstream. So on the other end of the spectrum, an example of a thought-based translation is the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation was published in 1996. It had a team of three scholars for each book of the Bible. And it was actually a revision of the Living Bible. And the Living Bible was a paraphrase. The Living Bible was done by Kenneth Taylor. So you can see one big difference with the paraphrase there, that it was done by one person. But this Kenneth Taylor felt that his children couldn't understand the Bible. So he wanted a version that was easy for them to understand. So then the New Living Translation, it was an overhaul of the Living Bible in order to actually make it a translation and not just a paraphrase. So the team said, we like that this is easy to understand, but we wanna make it into an actual translation that still is easy to understand. So then a translation that tries to hit a middle ground is the New International Version, the NIV, which you've probably heard of. And the most recent revision of the NIV was done in 2011. It also had a team of over 100 international scholars. And this revision, specifically, was done to update the language. And the translation team said that they recognize that English is constantly changing, so it needs to be updated as the language is updated. And the new international version was originally translated as an attempt to have a translation in balanced, plain English that is both dignified and simple. So you can see how they're trying to get that middle ground. They want it to be balanced, they want it to have the dignity of those word-for-word translations, but they also want the simplicity, the easy-to-understand of the more thought-based, so they're going for that middle ground. So there's another translation similar to this that you might not have heard of, it's a little less popular, and that's the Christian Standard Bible. This was originally published in 1999 actually as the Holman Christian Standard Bible and there was a revision just done in 2017 where they changed just to the Christian Standard Bible, so CSB. So this translation also had 100 international scholars. And they decided to translate because they said each new generation needs a fresh translation of the Bible in its own language. And because new advances in biblical research called for an updated translation. So those were their two reasons for a new translation. So then let's look for a second at a paraphrase. And of course, I talked about the Living Bible, but another paraphrase that people are often familiar with is the message. So the message was translated by Eugene Peterson and published in 2002, and Peterson decided to do his own paraphrase because as he led a Bible study, he began to feel like the biblical texts he was reading did not impact his students the way the original languages impacted him. So he wanted to create a translation that was idiomatic in English so that it could really impact people as they read it. So that's the reason for this paraphrase. But again, it's, it's not actually a translation. It's a paraphrase. So as you read it, it's, it's easy to understand. It helps increase your understanding. But you do have to keep in mind as you're reading it that it's not actually a translation. It's a paraphrase. So I want to read to you a verse in several of these different versions just to give you a feeling for what these different things sound like. And you can kind of hear when you're when you're listening to these. First of all, you can tell what the translation theory is, and also you can kind of tell what the audience is, too. So this is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, which most of us know. Okay, so now let's look at that in the English Standard Version, which is a very literal, so it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So that's very word for word, but it uses things like plans for welfare and not for evil. Well that might be kind of hard to understand for somebody like a child or someone with a lower education level. So. Then let's look at an easier, a thought-based translation. And here's the New Living Translation. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. So you can see how it's it's a lot more thought-based and the words are simpler and easier to understand. So let's look at this middle ground. This is Here's the New International Version. It says, for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future and then i'll also read the christian standard bible it says for i know the plans i have for you this is the lord's declaration plans for your well-being not for disaster to give you a future and a hope so you can see how both of those kind of try to hit this middle ground so then i want to read to you the message And, of course, the message is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. And actually, because it's a paraphrase, all the verses aren't exactly the same. So this is verses 10 and 11 kind of combined together. And it says, this is God's word on the subject. As soon as Babylon's 70 years are up and not a day before, I'll show up and take care of you as I promised and bring you back home. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future that you hope for. So you can see how that's very idiomatic. It's very easy to understand in English. But again, it's a paraphrase, so we need to keep that in mind. I think when people hear all these different versions, a question that always comes up is, so how are they all accurate? They all sound different, so how can they all be accurate? So... I think that first of all, you can kind of hear just from reading these that that a lot of the difference comes from the different translation theories. So for example, the English Standard Version says plans for welfare. Well that's definitely a higher level of reading than like say the New Living Translation that says plans for good. That's a much easier to understand translation. So you can see that some of these differences arise from the audience, from the translation theory. And you also have to understand how many ways there are to say the same thing in a language. So part of the reason is that whenever different people try to express the same concept, there's going to be a lot of different ways to say it. So even though different versions might not say the exact same thing, that doesn't make them a poor translation of the original. But beyond that, as we've mentioned, there are times when translators have to make a decision about what something means. So then the question is, how do we make sure that the translators are not pushing a certain agenda? Or how do we know that they're not simply wrong in their understanding of the text? So a big answer to that question lies in the idea of checks and balances. And all the translations I mentioned and not the paraphrases. Here's another major difference between translations and paraphrases. All the translations have a large number of translators on the team. So you can't have one person pushing a certain agenda because you have all these scholars who are catching it and correcting it. And the same goes for meaning. One, If one person misunderstands a text, it's not going to make it through the, through the process of, of the translation checking. Other people are going ch- to catch that. And not only that, but these translators are relying on hundreds of years of biblical experience, of biblical research. So they have commentaries, they have helps, they have translator handbooks, all of these things help them to understand the meaning of the text and to communicate it accurately. And of course, we we did mention that sometimes our understanding increases, and we realize that maybe we've been translating something in not the best way, and that's why they do revisions, so that they can go back and say, hey, let's let's update this, let's make it more accurate, let's make it better. So um, with that in mind, I guess you could say it could be possible that a whole committee gets together and does a translation with a particular agenda in mind. And then the translation will reflect that. So if you want your translation to say a certain thing and that's your point in translating, well, yes, that's gonna come out. So it is a good idea when choosing a translation, we're gonna talk a little bit about choosing a translation, and it's a good idea to know about the team that translated it, what their theory of translation is, and what their purpose for translating is. So with that in mind, I want to give you a few tips for choosing a translation. So the first thing you want to do when you're thinking about choosing a translation is consider what you want to do with the translation. Are you looking for something for devotional reading? Then you might want to look at a thought-based translation. Are you looking for something for in-depth study? Well, then you might want a word-for-word translation. Are you looking for something for your church? You need something that's maybe both readable for services and leaves room for study. Well, then you might want one of these translations that tries to hit a middle ground. So after you consider what you wanna do with the translation, the next step is to look at the translations kind of in those categories and look at the translation teams that have worked on the translation. What is their theory and purpose for translating? Most Bibles have an introduction at the beginning where they explain who the team is, what their theological leaning is, their purpose for translation, and their theory. And This information is available for free on sites like BibleGateway.com so you can check it out before you commit to a certain translation. So then as you're looking, it's also really wise to get advice. Talk to other Christians that you respect. See what versions they read and trust. Talk to your pastor. See what he recommends. So then on a more subjective standpoint, you can also just read some texts in different versions and see how they sound to you and kind of what clicks with you. So some examples might be like Psalm 23 where you can get some poetry. Luke 1, get some narrative. Ephesians 6, get some teaching. And then at the end, choose three. That's right, you don't have to limit yourself to one version. It's like we said with the King James Version, Don't limit yourself to one. All of these different versions are resources, and so we should use them as resources. Don't be afraid to try different translations. And this also provides checks and balances for yourself in your own study. It it keeps you from hanging your theology on one verse or on one word when you can see different ways that translators have interpreted what the original says. So those are some ideas for choosing a translation. And with that, we have come to the end of this podcast and actually to the end of this podcast series. So I really hope that this has been helpful for you as you consider where the Bible came from and whether or not you can trust it. And I really hope that it has helped you to grow in appreciation for the Bible that you have and to grow in appreciation for the men and women who poured their lives into putting the Bible in your hands so that you can have a Bible that you can read and understand. So I really hope that this has increased your trust in the Bible, but most of all, I really hope that it points you to Christ and that as you read the Bible, you will be pointed to Christ. So thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we talk about the Bible and Bible translation and God's work around the world. Thank you so much for joining us on Building a Bridge to God's Word.